And you can be seated. And if you've got a Bible with you, I ask you to turn it to Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. We have spent the summer investigating the book of Judges. And today is going to be our last sermon in the book of Judges. It's not the last sermon in our series on the book of Judges. But it's the last sermon in the book of Judges. And we'll explain that a little bit later because next week's going to be a little bit different. But um, we've talked about this period of history that's unique in the nation of Israel because it's sandwiched in between great leaders. Now, in, on the front end of Judges, we are coming off of the leadership of the leader Joshua. And Joshua was a leader who led his people into the promised land that got them to where they had been talking about for hundreds of years. They had been longing for a land of their own. Back when um, Abram was called by God, that he promised him a land that would be their own and a people. And so you have Joshua, the great leader there. And on the back end of the judges, after uh, another transitional leader or two in the first king Saul, you get the great king David, and even though David had some serious character issues and serious flaws, David was a man who was after God's own heart and was a great king. And in the midst of Joshua and David is this period of Judges. And the period of Judges here was a 250, 300, up to 350 year period when Israel had no centralized leader. In fact, at that time, the, the, the different tribes of Israel functioned much like a, a commonwealth or like the 13 original colonies with no centralized government. They had lots in common. They had a religion in common. They had an ancestry in common. They had a tradition in common, language in common. But there were 12 distinct tribes that didn't have a centralized location. Now, why were there 12 tribes? What's the reason for the number 12? Sons of Jacob, right? And so the founding of Israel had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons. And then those 12 sons, their families, each became a tribe. And so you have the 12 tribes that were living kind of separately, but also having some interaction with each other. And the whole time, there's no king. Now, the reason there was no king is because God had given them a law and God was supposed to be their king. God was supposed to be their king, that was going to be their ruler. He had given them the law, he had given them something to follow. And then he had expected them to follow what God had called them to do in the law. There were going to be judges, there were going to be people to help them interpret the law. But that was the basis of what they were supposed to do. But over that 250, 300, 350 year time frame, Israel, like us, did not like to be told what to do. Anybody here ever have a child that did not like to be told what to do? I got that hand. I see that hand. I see him. All right. We're going to have a support group afterwards. All right. Amen. I appreciate that. All right. Any of you as children didn't like to be told what to do? I see the hand that went up the quickest on both ones was David Jackson. I saw it. Right. Any of you as adults don't really like to be told what to do. There you go. Right. And so Israel had been given laws. They had said, God is our leader. We're going to follow the laws. But they didn't follow God. And what happened is they would disobey God. And as they disobeyed God, judgment would come. And once judgment came, they would cry out to God and God would deliver them. 
Then they would disobey God. Judgment would come. They would cry out to God. God would deliver them. Disobey God. Judgment would come. Cry out to God. God would deliver them. You get into this cycle in the book of Judges that we have seen for this entire series of messages. Today, we're going to look at the last three chapters of the book, and we're going to see that that cycle is breaking down, not because the sin is not there and not because the judgment is not there, but we don't see the repentance to God like we did earlier. In fact, the book of Judges is more than a cycle. It's really a spiral as it is continually getting worse and worse and worse. All of us really, when we think about it, have this sort of cycle in our own lives. Anybody here ever messed up in life, like got yourself in a bad situation? Somebody bailed you out and helped you, got out of it, and you're like, whoo, glad that's done. You said, I will never do that again. And you didn't for three weeks or a month or a year. Somebody looks at you and said, you should have learned your lesson. We all have those moments. And here's the thing. We get to the end of the book of Judges. You ever heard the phrase in saving the best for last? Anybody here one of those people that, like when you have something to eat, like you save the best bite you can get, you think that's going to be the best bite, you save it to the very last bite. Anybody here? Let me see your hands. I love you people. That's who I am, all right? So if you get a steak, you analyze the steak, that's going to be the very best Bite, and so you wait. You heard about saving the best for last. Well, the book of Judges saves the worst for last. The story in Judges 19 through 21, one pastor has called the most outrageous story in the Bible. Now, we're talking about a book that we believe to be completely true that also has stories of a donkey talking. Right? But he says... That Judges 19 through 21 are the, is the most outrageous story in the Bible. Here's what we're going to do today. I'm not going to read, just start reading in chapter 19 all the way through 21. And all of God's people said, Amen. All right, we're going to summarize it though. We're going to read portions of the scripture, but I'm going to tell you the story because it is multi-layered, complicated story. It happens, it starts in chapter 19 and the ramifications aren't ended until the end of 21. And the whole point of this message, the whole point of the last three chapters of Judges is that it shows us how bad things really got. And it gives us a picture of what happens when a group of people, a community, a nation, or individuals do what they want to do for 300 years. They had this idea that they had their ways to treat the laws. In fact, when they got into tribes, they liked to rule in this ways that they wanted to rule. They said, mind your own business. Take care of yourself. We're going to worry about us. We're going to do us. We're going to have us. We're going to be me. We're going to be who we are. We're going to rule like we rule. This is good for our family. It's not necessarily good for your family. It's not necessarily good for you. But we're going to do us. And for 300 years, Israel accomplished doing that. And we're going to see it led them to a very dark place. You have to understand that when we start this passage of Scripture in chapter 19 in just a moment, there are still 12 tribes of Israel scattered around the promised land. They don't live real close to each other always. Some of them live farther away than others. And each tribe of Israel has tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people living in those tribes. And so it is 
all over the map of the promised land, these pockets of the tribes. And so when we talk about the different tribes, I'll kind of point that out. But just to let you know, it could get confusing in the midst of this. You will probably want to go back. If this interests you or you find something in here, you think, I want to find that further. Go back and read chapter 19 through 21 later today. But in chapter 19, it starts by telling us, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, acquired a woman from Bethlehem in Judah as his concubine. There's a lot to unpack even in that phrase. So the first thing we have is we have a Levite from Ephraim. Now, here's the thing about the Levites. They were descendants of Abram, but they held a special function in the history and in the kind of the the understanding of what Israel was supposed to be. Who were the Levites supposed to be? They were the what? Priests. They were religious leaders, worship leaders. They were people that helped to rule the religious aspect of the nation. And it tells us in that first verse that this priest had gone down to Bethlehem for a specific purpose. And that was to get what? A concubine. Let me just say this. It's never a good thing when your religious leader is going after concubines. All right. Now, concubines are kind of a strange category here. It's a formalized relationship that has some sort of relational quality. It's not his wife. It's not a, a, a girlfriend. It's more than that. She definitely serves the, some of the functions that wives and girlfriends serve. She definitely um, does things for him in service that, that they do in life in general and but it's not quite a wife, not really a girlfriend. It's more formalized than a girlfriend, less than a wife. She's an extra for him. Again, it's not really good when your religious leaders have extras. Well, the Levite and his concubine are living fine in Ephraim, but she decides that she doesn't like just the company of the Levite. And so she commits adultery. And then he finds out she commits adultery. And then she finds out that he found out that she committed adultery. And so she says, that's fine. I'm leaving. I'm going back to Bethlehem. And she goes back to Bethlehem and moves in with her dad. After a little while, the Levite, the religious leader, the guy that's supposed to be a spiritual kind of force for the nation, says either he got lonely or he got tired or he got bored or thought that that shouldn't have happened. He decides he's going to go to Bethlehem and get back his concubine. Yet again, a phrase you don't want to utter about religious leaders in your life. He gets there. The dad has grown accustomed to the concubine being back in the family. And so the, what do you call the father of the concubine for the guy? His concubine-in-law dad? Like, I don't know, I don't know the proper phrase there, but he decides he is going to keep her there. And so he devises this plan where his plan is he's going to get the Levite drunk every night. So that when he wakes up in the morning, he'll be so hungover, he won't be able to really get going till around noon or one. And then the dad would say, listen, it's too late to get on the road. You're not going to get very far. There's not a good place to stop after a while. There's no reason for you to leave tonight. 
And the Levite would go, you know, you're right. Your right's late. We don't want to, we don't want to get out on the road like this. I mean, it's not like today when, when, you know, street lights. I mean, it was a dangerous place to be on the road. And so he said, all right, we'll just take around one more night. One more night. We're going to leave in the morning. And that night, the dad would get the Levite drunk and party. Next morning, doesn't get up till late. You can't leave today. It's too late. You don't want to. You don't be out there on the road with my daughter. I mean, you're taking my daughter anyways. Don't go now. Wait on this. Eventually, the Levite says, we've got to go. It's time to go. We can't wait any longer. And so they leave, and it's him, so the Levite, his concubine, two donkeys, and a male servant. And they leave on the trek back to Ephraim, which would have been up north. And on their way, they realize they're going to have to stop somewhere along the way because you can't travel all night. You don't have any, there are no hotels to stay in. And so what you did is when it got close to nightfall, you went to the closest town. And for this particular time, it was the town of Gibeah, which is in the tribe of Benjamin. And what you did in that time, since there were no hotels, since there weren't any inns, you went and you went to the town square. You went usually around the well of water and you would sit there with your party. And it was required by the laws of hospitality that someone from the town was supposed to come out, see who you are, introduce yourself, shake your hand and say, come stay with me tonight. And so they go, they get to the town center, they sit at the well. And as they're sitting at the well, nobody comes. Nobody from Gibeah comes. They don't come out, they don't say hello, they don't, you know, people pass them, don't say anything. Until towards the time when it would have been too late, an older man returns. And he's originally from Ephraim, but he's living in Gibeah. And he sees the husband, or the man, and concubine, and the male servant, and the two donkeys, and he says, y'all come to my place tonight. They go to stay, they're there. They're having a good time. And then scripture tells us what happens next. We're going to put this one up. While they were enjoying themselves, the man, the concubine, two donkeys, male servant, man of the house, assuming his wife and daughter. All of a sudden, wicked men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. They said to the old man who was the owner of the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. So here's what's happening here. This is not a gratification thing. This is a humiliation. In the ancient world, one of the practices they would use to humiliate travelers or men or people that they didn't like or want in their city is that the men of the city would have sex with the man as humiliation. And so this isn't they're trying to gratify any desire. They're simply trying to humiliate this man. The owner of the house went out and said to them, please don't do this evil, my brothers. After all, this man has come into my house. Don't commit this horrible outrage. So at this moment, he stops and he says, we're going to stop right there for a second. He says, listen, don't do this. And so he is the hero of the story at this point, right? He took in the wayward travelers. 
Whatever you think of the concubine and the Levite, he did what was required by God's law. He took in the wayward travelers. He kept them in his house. He was being hospitable to them. He was helping them have a safe place to stay. These men start knocking on his door, bring the man out, bring him out. And he says, no, 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 don't do that. Guys, listen, we're better than this. This is not what we're about. This is not who we are. Don't call for him. He, I am responsible for him. In their tradition, and their understanding, he was responsible for the guest in his house. He says, I'm responsible for this man. Please don't do this. Don't do this outrageous thing. Here, this is where he turns from hero into something else. Let me bring out my virgin daughter and the man's concubine now. Abuse them and do whatever you want to them, but don't commit this outrageous thing against this man. So he says, listen, I'm responsible for this guy that's a traveler in my house. I can't bring him out to you because I'm under law. I can't do that. But I have a daughter. And he's got a concubine. And we can bring both of them out. The men are not taking it. The men would not listen to him. So the man, that's the Levite, seized his concubine, seized there as an intentional word, took her, forced her, threw her out. And they took, took outside to them, and they, I didn't put the rest of that verse up there. You can see it if you've got your Bibles open. But they abused her. They took advantage of her. And the men of the city completely ravaged her. The next morning, the man gets up. He goes outside. And the concubine is there, just laid out. She's alive at the moment. But as he brings her into the house, as he talks with her, as he tries to ask some questions of her, it says that she did not respond. And it's the biblical way of saying she died. So the Levite, who had traveled to Bethlehem to get back his concubine, takes the concubine, puts her on one of the donkeys, his male servant, So it's him, the male servant, the two donkeys, and the concubine laid over. And they leave for home. He gets home. He is mad. Understandably mad. They broke the laws of hospitality. He never imagined that what resulted with his concubine would result. He obviously knew something was going to happen. He never imagined they would kill her and abuse her to that extent. They get home, and he decides he's going to sit down and write a letter to all the tribes and say, this is what's going on. You need to know this, because this is not who we are. This is not what God intended. You need to know what's happening in your country with your tribes. But he thinks to himself, they're not going to read the letters. It's just a letter. What could I do to make them read the letter, to get their attention? So he takes his concubine and he cuts her into 12 pieces. And he ties each letter to a part of her body. And then the letter says, this is what the Benjamites in Gibeah did to her. And he sends it to the 12 tribes. 
when they get to the 12 tribes, two to three days later, people begin to read it. They begin to see it. And you can imagine if you're the kind of mayor, if you will, the de facto leader of a city, and you say, hey, somebody has sent something to you from up from um, Ephraim. They brought us a message. And you go out there and there's something attached to the message. And attached to the message is an arm or a leg. I'm not trying to be insensitive here. It's just the reality of what's going on. You do pay a little more attention to what's going on in that moment. Chapter 19, verse 30 tells us that when they all got the letters, it says everyone who saw it. Everyone means everyone. It said nothing like this. Everyone who saw it said nothing like this has ever happened or has been since since the day Israelites came out of the land of Egypt until now. Think it over, discuss it, and speak up. They say, listen, this is rock bottom. We can't imagine being lower than this. This is unbelievable. It is unacceptable. We need to come up with a plan. And so they do. They come up with a plan. They decide that they're going to get their entire nation together for an army. They're going to pull all the tribes together. They're going to form an army. They're going to go there, and they're going to go to Gibeah and say, we demand that the men that did this come out to us, and we are going to perform an act of justice. In Judges chapter 20, verse 1, it tells us that the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came out, a community assembled as one body before the Lord at Mizpah. And at Mizpah they commit to seeing justice done for this concubine. They also make a vow at that place and say that no man from the other 11 tribes will ever give his daughter in marriage to a man from the tribe of Benjamin. He says it's too much, it's too far. Here's the thing. How many tribes were there? Twelve. How many tribes got the message about the woman with a body part attached? Twelve. Including the Benjamites. And they knew justice was coming. So as the nation is gathering 11 tribes to go fight against Gibeah or to get justice for Gibeah, the Benjamites are gathering all of their forces. And when the other 11 tribes arrive at Gibeah, the Benjamites have surrounded it and says, you're not getting in here. And the 11 tribes say, hey, bring out the people that did this. We got the letter. You got the letter. You know what happened. Bring out the men that did this. And the Benjamites say, no. They said there hasn't been a trial. How do you know what they did? We will judge them ourselves. We will do it the way we do it. It is for us to decide, not you. And the others say, no, we're coming to get them. So war begins. And on the first day, the 11 tribes are completely routed by the Benjamites. Thousands die. On the second day, the same thing happens. The 11 are defeated soundly by the Benjamites. Thousands die. On the third day, they think, we got to have a better idea. And so they go in like they're going to attack. And then at the first sign of trouble, they feign defeat and begin to run away. The Benjamites, seeing this as an opportunity to take them and destroy them and finish it, run after them. What they did not know is that the 11 tribes had left some guys behind for an ambush on the city. When they chase after them, the, the 11 tribes, they send their men into the city. The city begins to burn. The Benjamites are chasing the 11. Hear and learn around and see their city on fire. 
They rush back to help. While they rush back to help, they're getting attacked now as they're advancing. The ones that were retreating, they're getting attacked from the front and they are destroyed. After two days of thousands of their own people being killed, the 11 tribes decide this is not a time for mercy. So they kill every man, woman, child, livestock, and burn the city to the ground. Then they go to every other city in the tribe of Benjamin, burn it to the ground, kill every man, woman, and child. The only Benjamites left are 600 of that original army that were stationed around Gibeah who escaped into the desert where they would hide for four months. After all, things kind of settled, after the adrenaline was gone, after the bloodlust was gone from the 11 tribes, they back together and they say, wait a minute. What have we done? We just wiped off the face of the earth one of the original 12 tribes of Israel. One of our ancestors' sons' people, we just wiped off the earth. And they repent. And they say to the Lord, we're sorry. And then they say, there's nothing we can do about it. And somebody says, wait a minute, there are 600 of their men in the wilderness. Maybe we could get them back. Somebody else says, man, that sounds like an awesome plan. Maybe we could get them back. There's one problem. It's only 600 men. There are no women. And all of us here have made a vow that every person in Israel has made a vow that no one would give their daughters to marriage to the Benjamites. There are no more Benjamite women. So they think, they ponder, and they say, wait a minute, was there anybody around that didn't go fight with us? Somebody says, hey, I don't think there was anybody from Jabesh Gilead. And they go, all right, anybody here? Anybody here from Jabesh Gilead? Nobody raised their hand. They said, all right, that's our answer. We're going to Jabesh Gilead. And they send their whole army to Jabesh Gilead. They attack the city. They destroy the city, burn it, kill every man and woman. But they leave the young girls, like the teenagers, preteens. And they kidnap them and bring them back to be wives for the men who are hiding out in the woods. They have one problem with that. They don't have enough. They need about a hundred more and they're sitting around thinking, what in the world are we going to do? We can't, we got a hundred of these guys. We got to find wives for these guys. And they're thinking, what are we going to do with these guys that have lost out on the wife lottery? We got to figure it out. So they said, wait a minute, at Shiloh, they're about to have a big party. Remember the big party? Oh, yeah, the party at Shiloh. All the young ladies come out and they dance. Yes, here's what we're going to do. We're going to tell those hundred guys to go camp around where they come out and dance and hide. And when the women come out to dance, just go tell them to steal whichever one they want. They said, that way we can say to their dads, you didn't give your daughter in marriage to the Benjamites. They were stolen by them. And then the pictures kind of described of the 600 Benjamite men going back to their land that still probably has some smoldering fires completely in ruins. Figuratively and perhaps literally, you can see the picture of these 600 warriors with a woman strapped over their shoulder 
walking back into a desolate land. And the book ends. But wasn't that a good ending? That's it. No Hollywood ending, no surprise. It was all a dream. And we're talking about the Bible that generally has pretty good endings, right? I mean, like the resurrection's a pretty good ending to the story, amen? Y'all aren't convinced by that. It's a pretty good ending, amen? I mean, that's good. I mean, people are rescued. You get Joshua right before this, and you have Joshua sitting there saying, I'm going to serve the Lord. What are you going to do? And they all rise up. We're going to serve the Lord. And you're like, yeah, let's go. And the book of Judges ends with men carrying stolen wives back to the land that their brothers burned to the ground. But there's a verse at the end that gives us a picture of why it happened. It's the last verse in the whole book of Judges. And it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Remember, we got that in chapter 19 to start. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Now, here's what I want to tell you about that story. When you step back from that story, it is horrendous. Amen? It's terrible. And I want you to hear, first of all, some people use these stories and say, see, God condones that kind of stuff. This is in no way God's will from chapter 19 through 21. Okay? So don't believe that mess. But when you step back, you're like, how in the world could it ever get to that? I mean, just when you think it's going to get, it can't get any worse than that. It gets worse than that. But it tells us that that's the result of when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Here's what I want to tell you. When you step back from it, you see the horror of it. But I do believe that in each particular instance, those people thought they were doing what was right for them. I mean, when you think about the the Levite, I mean, his concubine left well she's mine she's mine and that day she's my property she belongs to me she didn't even run back to her dad i need to go get her i need to show her that she's mine she stays with me i mean there's a book in the bible about a guy whose wife was a prostitute and left him and went and got her and we celebrate him he said, I gotta go get my wife. So he go gets his wife. Well, he says, we gotta go back. We gotta go back. The dad there thinks, man, I can't let these people go. I love my daughter. I love what she goes all the way to Ephraim. She doesn't like it. She doesn't like being up there with him. They'd be better here. I'm just gonna keep getting this guy drunk. That, he thought that was what was right. They get to Gibeah. The men in Gibeah are like, we know who these people are. We are. Maybe we've heard some things. Maybe we haven't. We know that it's not a good thing. Maybe there have been words sent that we're not glad about them going. Whatever it is, they're like, we, we don't want them in our house. And I got too much to do tonight. There's no way my house didn't clean enough. I don't, they probably didn't think that, but like I, nothing I can like I can't have them in my house tonight. And look at them. Nobody let those kind of people in. The older man is there, and he thinks, "Well, I'm supposed to take them in," so he takes them in. The men of Gibeah surround him because they're like, "We got to teach these people a lesson. They can't just waltz into our town, live where they want to live, eat our stuff, be a part of this. We got to set some ground rules about who can be a part of our town." I'm not saying they're right. I'm saying they thought they were right. The man of the house says, "You know what? 
I can't give him this man because the law tells me he is my responsibility. But the law doesn't say anything about giving him my daughter. So I, I, that's what's right at this moment. Give my daughter and the concubine. The man that came, the Levite's like, listen, I'm not in this situation if my concubine stays home. It's her fault. I'm here. I'm sending her out. When he gets home and he's writing the letter, he's like, I've got to get people's attention. Justice has got to be done. We can't let this go. The people get around. They're like, we got to do something about this. Those guys need to be punished for what they did. We can't let them off the hook. And the men of Benjamin are like, what gives them the right to come in and tell us what to do or to take our people or to be executioner when there hasn't even been a trial for our people? We'll handle the justice. It's our house. We'll take care of it. They don't need to be here. And they've already said, man, we can't let our guy, like, we can't let our daughters be parts of families that are going to treat people that way. And then you get routed two days in a row and you're like, we got to destroy them. And then we got a problem. We don't have any, we don't have any girls. Well, we can't go back on our oath. Well, what about, what about, they didn't help us. Jabez Gilead didn't do anything to help us. They might as well be our enemy. If you're not with us, you're against us. Every step of the way, they thought they were doing what was right. There is a way that seems right in the heart of man, but in the end leads to destruction. Now, here's what I want to tell you. And, Listen, I know that when I say this, you're going to think to the most drastic level, but I do want us to think about this in this way. There is some of that in every single one of us in this room that we think we know what's best and we think we know what's right and we want to do what's right for us. I mean, in fact, if you were to ask kind of the mantra of America today, and nobody would maybe say it this way if you ask them on the street, but it's true. In America today, in our culture today, we want the freedom to do what we want to do when we want to do it, with whom we want to do it. We want the freedom to do what we want, when we want, with whom we want. We don't want you telling me what I need to do. Our culture has kind of pushed back against all kinds of authority. Government authority, city authority, school authority, the authority of God. Because we know what we know what we need. We know what needs to happen. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, with whom we want to do it. And then we'll add this little caveat at the end. That as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. What does it matter to you? It's not going to hurt anybody. There are two problems with that, by the way. The first one we won't spend much time on, but it's true. To live and do what you want, when you want, with whom you want, you got to be super rich. Because if you live doing what you want, when you want, with whom you want for very long, you're going to need lawyers. Like lots of them. And who is it in our culture that is propagating this message to us over and over again? It's the super rich that are making the music and the movies and the... And they're telling us, you ought to be able to live in freedom. Have what you want. Where you want, when you want, with whom you want. Don't deny yourself anymore. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody. What does it matter? Here's the second problem with that. Doing what you want, when you want, with whom you want, eventually hurts somebody. You can't do what's right in your own eye without eventually hurting someone. And usually it starts with you. You can't live how you want, do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, with whomever you want, and it not hurt you. 
So as mentioned, I spent the week at CentraKid, had an unbelievable week, great week. I love going to CentraKid. I love spending time with the kids. I love the messages that we had. It was a great week. But you do, when you go to camp, you eat camp food, like all week. Every morning you get up, you had eggs or egg-like substance, egg-colored substance. They weren't the most flavorful eggs in the world, and so in order to make the egg-like substance taste better, you poured lots of gravy-like substance on top of the eggs. Mix it all together, you get some tastes, maybe. And what always happens is about Wednesday after lunch, when you're at camp, two or three kids will come up to you and go, my stomach just doesn't feel quite right. You're like, I hear you, brother. I hear you, sister. I'm with you. I'm there. It's just not quite. Because here's the thing. You can't eat camp food not high on the nutritional impact studies. You can't eat camp food for a full week and not be impacted by it. If you are, you need to check your diet the rest of the year. Okay? And the wonderful thing about the camp food we had this week was you could get as much as you wanted of each item. We had one kid that will remain nameless that I think had 24 tiny whole potatoes on his plate. And that was all. A meal of tiny whole, you know what I'm talking about, stewed potatoes? A tray of potatoes, that was it. The first day there, Luke got four trayfuls of eggs or egg-like substance. And you can't live that way and not be impacted. Amen? Same is true in our spiritual lives, our emotional lives, our lives in general. You can't do what's right in your own eyes without it hurting somebody, starting with you, but it always impacts the people closest to you. Now, maybe I shouldn't have put that point right after talking about the food at camp, but it does impact the people around you. Your sin does too. Your disobedience does too. And it impacts those that come after you as well. The truth is, you hurt the people you care about. You hurt the people who care about you. You hurt the people that come after you. And when you live how you want, with who you want, where you want, when you want, you eventually become mastered by what you're doing. And as a result, you end up with a chaotic, broken life. I thought as we kind of finish up with this whole series, that we'd look back for a moment. We're going to do a, a sermon next, sun, next Sunday that I'm really excited about that's from the same time period, but it shows the hope that's to come. Because when you end the book of Judges, there is very little, if any, hope. And so you ask the question, okay, so why is it here? Other than giving us a picture of what happens in that meantime, we don't have any real picture of what happens in the meantime between Malachi and Jesus. So what happens? So why is it here? And I think it's here to teach us three lessons, more than that probably, but three that I want us to think about today. And the first is this, is that disobedience leads to chaos. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week. But disobedience in your life leads to chaos. 
The people of Israel again and again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they were punished or they were given over to themselves and it led to chaos in their lives. I mean, think about the story we just read. If somebody made that as a movie, people would say it's too ridiculous. And it's true, stranger than fiction. And it all came because they were disobedient to doing what the Lord had said. It leads to chaos in your personal life. Disobedience and walking away from the Lord will lead, if it has not led, to chaos in your life. And you may get by for 10, 15, 20 years, but chaos will come. The second thing we see from this book of Judges is that we need a better judge. The judges that are listed in this book, some of the heroes of the faith, Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Ehud, Some of them were good, some of them were not. All of them brought deliverance to the people of Israel, but what we see is that deliverance was fleeting. It didn't last. It wasn't there very long. That they would rule, and then they would rule for 20 years, and there would be peace, and then as soon as they quit ruling, they would be in bondage for 15. And as we go throughout the judges, each judge's rule is not as significant as the one before till you get to Jephthah, who only has seven years of peace when there have been 18 years of oppression. And you get to the end of the book of Judges and you're like, these people need to get it right. And the point of the book of Judges is they can't without Jesus. They can't. And here's the last thing that we see in this passage, this whole book. And I love this. God provides. There is not a single story when you read this book where the people deserved to be delivered from what they had found themselves in. And yet, time and time and time again, God provided. And He provides because He loves. One of my favorite verses in this whole book is from last week. And you remember, if you were here last week, or uh, maybe you can go back and listen, but we talked about that Jephthah was not a great judge. He was not somebody that should have been a judge, but God used him, and there was this point in there where they cried out to God, and it says, and God could not stand their suffering anymore. He loved them too much to let them keep suffering. We just sang a few minutes ago about how he loves us. And the truth is that even in Judges, we see when his people were absolutely wicked and did what was right in their own eyes, God, time and time again, provides deliverance. One of my favorite parts about Central Kid Camp is that they rehearse the gospel for the kids every single night. And so they talk about the fact that God rules and that we sin and that God provided. But this week, our pastor for this week, who was a great, did a great job, the fourth point of that outline is that Jesus gives And he says, sometimes when we talk about Jesus and we talk about the cross, we talk about that Jesus gave his life. And that's true. He gave his life. But the point of that is not that he gave his life, but that he continues to give to us today. He gave his life on the cross, but he also gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the people that surround us that help us to live the Christian life like we should. He gives us an opportunity to be forgiven. He gives us grace and mercy. He gives us gifts to tell the world about Jesus every single day he gives. 
Every single day, God provides. So as we kind of finish up the book of Judges, with one more message in the series to go, I think about that last point on the gospel presentation. God rules, we send, God provided, Jesus gives. The last one is we respond. And I wonder what you need to respond today. Maybe it is that you realize that you've been trying it on your own, doing it on your own. You've been trying to do what was right in your own eye. This is for me and my family. This is right. I, I understand that, that, that we ought to be doing this for the Lord or we ought to think of that direction or we ought to be having that priority. But for me and my family right now, this is what I need. This is what we need. This is what's right for me. For you personally and your career or your job or your life or maybe there's something that you keep giving yourself over to, a sin that you keep giving yourself over to and you just can't kind of break free from that and you say, for me right now, this is who I am, this is what I do. God is looking at your life saying, just return. You know, sometimes we give a, we give a hard time to the Israelites in the book of Judges because of that cycle. But one of the things that I think we need to understand is every time that cycle happens, we get the cycle because at some point the Israelites said, enough is enough, and they turned to God. Until you get to the end of the book where there doesn't seem to be any turning to God. Time and time again they turn to God. And sometimes in our lives we think we're too far gone. Or we think we've got it handled on our own. Or we think we can make it through. And we don't stop and return to God. For some of you today here, you need to cry out to God for deliverance. Broken spirit, a contrite heart. The Lord will not turn away. What's your response? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you given yourself to Him? Let's pray together.